Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 35. This week, we'll finish up Jeremiah, work through Lamentations, and begin the book of Ezekiel. And so there's a lot of material to cover, um, and I have a feeling the podcast will be a little bit longer this week. But let's pick up with Jeremiah chapter 50. Now, Jeremiah's longest message against the nations focused on Babylon. And chapter 50 tells us that Babylon would be captured and her gods would be put to shame. And Jeremiah is looking at his near future when Babylon does fall to the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 BC in this event also detailed in Daniel chapter 5. However, Babylon's destruction is also referenced in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Now, today, the city of Babylon is in ruins, and whether or not it will be resurrected as, as a city of power and influence in the end times is not clear. However, Babylon originally started as a tower, the Tower of Babel, and the city is forever associated with rebellion against God that took place back in Genesis chapter 11. So, with all that in mind, we might say that Babylon is symbolic of all those nations who would rebel against God, and there will be one day in the future when God will finally judge those nations for their treatment of His people and their rebellion against Him. Now, chapter 51 tells us that when Babylon is destroyed, the Israelites will return back to their homeland. And this happens as Cyrus, the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire, allows the Jewish people to return to their homeland after he defeats the Babylonians. And we talked at length about these returns earlier in our reading through Scripture um, with men like Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah who lead the people back. But there will also be a final return of the Jewish people to their homeland after Babylon is defeated at the end times and Christ sets up his kingdom on earth. The Jewish people will return to their land and worship their king. Now, as a capstone to all the prophecies against Babylon, Jeremiah compiled all of them on a scroll and gave it to a man named Sariah, a staff officer to the king of Judah. And when Sariah got to Babylon, he was instructed to read the scroll aloud. Then he was to tie a stone around the scroll and throw it into the Euphrates River. And as the scroll um, sank beneath the water, Sariah was to announce that Babylon, like the scroll, would sink and rise no more. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is found in Revelation 18, verse 21. Listen to what it says. It says this, and I'm reading from NLT. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a huge millstone. He threw it into the ocean and shouted, just like this, the great city of Babylon will be thrown um, thrown out with violence or thrown down with violence and will never be found again. Now, chapter 52 is nearly identical, and it's the last chapter in Jeremiah. It's nearly identical to 2 Kings chapter 24 through most of chapter 25, and that section is describing the fall of Jerusalem. The reason it appears here at the end of Jeremiah is to show Jeremiah's words of judgment against Jerusalem had been fulfilled, and his words about Judah's release from exile were about to be fulfilled. So the final chapter serves to vindicate the prophet and to encourage the remnant that were still in captivity. And this chapter is also a reminder that God will do exactly what he promised he will do. And if we believe this, our lives will exhibit both a sense of obedience as well as expectancy. Now, a note of congratulations, Ernora, because you finished the longest book in the Bible, the book of Jeremiah. Pat yourself on the back, but it's not time to slack off. It's time to keep going. The next book of the Bible is Lamentations, and it was also written by Jeremiah. Lamentations is a lament over the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah writes the book as kind of a postscript to the book of Jeremiah, and it contains five funeral dirges or funeral laments over the fate of Jerusalem because of her sin. And this book is a stark reminder that sin carries with it consequences of sorrow, of grief, and misery, and pain that's caused by the choices in life. Almost 900 years earlier, 
here in passages like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God had warned of the consequences of disobedience. And as Jeremiah carefully notes, God carries out those curses, those punishments. Yet even in the midst of this dark time for Israel, probably her darkest time, Lamentation is a book of hope. God was faithful in discharging every aspect of his covenant that he made. The same covenant that promised judgment for disobedience also promised restoration for repentance. So let's look at this book quickly. Chapter 1 describes Jeremiah and the people weeping over Jerusalem's destruction. Jerusalem has now been economically reduced to the status of a widow. And so our population is decimated and the city was deserted. And of course, all this took place because she had forsaken her true lover and friend for false gods and foreign alliances. The city had fallen because she had not considered the consequences of her actions. And of course, the Jews also wanted to remind God that their Babylonian captors were also sinners that deserved judgment, always trying to shift the blame, it seems. But Jeremiah did not want the Jews to rest their case with that plea for equity. They were sinners and deserved judgment. The only hope they had was in the mercy of God. The destruction and misery make up the first lament. That's chapter one. The second lament is described in chapter two, and it's God's punishment of Jerusalem's sin. And God was angry with the city, as he had every right to be. God removed all those whom the people looked to for guidance and leadership. He systematically dismantled everything in which they trusted, even the temple, which was laid waste. Every group mentioned, king, priest, and prophet, were affected by Jerusalem's fall. And Jeremiah gives us different pictures of what is happening as God judges the city. Children were calling out for food and they could find none. Men were trying to offer comfort to dying friends, but there was no comfort to offer. False prophets had hastened the destruction of the city rather than prevented it. The enemy is mocking the city and its people. The people who were left are constantly wailing out or crying out to God for help. Some people view sin as a victimless crime that affects only the one who is sinning, but the reality here and the reality in our lives is that sin's consequences can often reach far beyond the sinner to touch those who are otherwise innocent. Now, the third lament in chapter 3 shows that there is hope to be found. In fact, a great hymn of faith has been penned because of this chapter. It's called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. You might know it. In the first part of this chapter, Jeremiah's testimony is one of utter rejection because he is looking at his mission to Israel as a failure. God's afflictions had taken their toll on Jeremiah's body. God refused to acknowledge his prayer, and all avenues of escape seemed to be blocked. It would seem that God was using Jeremiah as, as a punching bag or as target practice. One author said it this way, Here Jeremiah bears his heart to the reader. His life was one long martyrdom in which he served both as judge and intercessor for people bent on their own destruction. No prophet ever pleaded with the people in a more impassioned manner, calling for a, nation, a national conversion than he did. And no one except Jesus was treated with more national contempt than he. Those are powerful words. You know, in the midst of the darkest time of his life, there was one thought that kept crowding out all others. Verse 19 of chapter 3 says this, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this also, awesome, awful time Excuse me, as I grieve over my loss. Yet, I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies begin afresh each morning. You know, Jeremiah would now wait for God to bring about restoration and blessing because he now understood how inexhaustible was the Lord's supply of love. The afflictions that came from God were not cruel. They came from a God who was and is compassionate. God's affliction was designed as a corrective measure to restore the wayward path his people had taken. 
Focusing on problems will make us discouraged, but focusing on God's never-ending faithfulness always gives us hope. Chapter 4 of Lamentations is the fourth lament, and the reoccurring theme here is that Israel's sin is what brought about her punishment. The punishment for sin exceeded that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Take a look at verse 6 to note that. Jeremiah could have cited all the sins of the people, but here in chapter 4, he singled out two glaring sin problems, the corruption of Israel's spiritual leaders and the people's trust in man. Now, chapter 5 is the final lament of the book, but this lament is in the form of a prayer. Jeremiah's prayer contained two specific requests. First, that God would remember the plight of his people, and second, that he would restore them to their promised covenant blessings. The book of Lamentations ends on a high note. In spite of severe suffering and because of her sins, Judah had not been abandoned entirely as a nation. There is still hope for a future restoration. Now, before we get on to the next book to Ezekiel, let me just stop here and say something. The more I study and read about Israel's perpetual and perennial problems with sin that she had in the Old Testament, the more I see the condition of man's heart. If there is ever a lesson that is couched in the life of the nation of Israel, it's the sinfulness of man's heart. Israel was given every privilege, multiple chances, and mercy on countless occasions. Yet in spite of all this, she still chose adultery. She still went after other gods. Her heart was bent and dark on evil. But the further she descended into evil, the more God's mercy began to shine brighter and brighter. Don't misunderstand me. You shouldn't delve into the darkness of sin to experience God's mercy. I think the lesson for all of us is that if God can restore Israel in light of all that she has done in rebellion and apostasy towards God, then there is hope for all of us. I guess the lesson is ultimately a positive one, for in the negative example of the nation of Israel, she demonstrates clearly what God does not want us to do. So if we can learn the lesson, we can learn it from that. Well, we're left with one more large book from the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel. And this is the last large book that we have. The rest of the books are smaller. And here's some things to keep in mind when reading through uh, the book of Ezekiel. First, Ezekiel is likely to be the best prophet that keeps the best records. And by that, I mean that all his prophecies are consistently chronologically arranged, and they have a specific dating as well. So those of you who are OCD will appreciate the book of Ezekiel. Secondly, not only is this book chronologically organized, but Ezekiel also organizes his content logically. It, that means it flows well and is organized well. Third, Ezekiel's message is similar to Jeremiah's, but their audiences are different. Jeremiah's messages were for those in Jerusalem, while Ezekiel's messages were for those in exile. Easy to remember, right? Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel in exile. And I even alliterated that for you. Aren't I nice? Now, fourth, much if not most of the material in the book of Ezekiel comes from an autobiographical perspective, giving us the sense that these are memoirs of one of God's prophets. Fifth, the book of Ezekiel contains a lot of different genres, proverbs, visions, parables, symbolism, allegories, rhetorical questions, dreams, dramas, history, apocalyptic revelations, and the list goes on. So lots of genres. Sixth, for most people, the vision in chapter one and the vision of the dry bones are the two main things that people know about Ezekiel. This book is the most neglected of all the prophets. Seventh, Ezekiel and the ways in which he delivered his messages were full of drama and shock factor. They were colorful messages to get the attention of his readers. Eighth, Ezekiel was a priest as well as a prophet. His priestly lineage was from the Zadok branch of Aaron's family, and so because of this, he was familiar with the law and the priestly functions. Lastly, 
God's glory is the thing that runs through this book. God's glory is an aspect of his character, and his character determines his conduct throughout history. Without an appreciation of God's glory, the Israelites could not make sense of his dealings with them. Over 60 times in this book alone, God said he had to act so that the people would know that he is God and he is God alone. All right, enough about the book. Let's get into the chapters from the book. Now, chapters 1 through 3 form the first section of the book of Ezekiel, and these chapters contain the call and commissioning of Ezekiel to be God's prophet to the people of Israel. There are normally four elements that mark commission narratives in the prophets. All four elements are present in Ezekiel's calling. Those four elements are a divine confrontation, an explanation of the prophet's task, objection to the task that the prophet might offer, and divine reassurance that the Lord would help him and the Lord would be with him. So in chapter 1, we find there are four living creatures that are spotted in the midst of a lightning storm that is approaching. In chapter 10, these living beings are identified as cherubim, a special order of supernatural beings. Besides each cherub, he sees, or Ezekiel sees, a wheel which had unusual shape. What I think Ezekiel is envisioning here is the throne of God on a mobile platform of sorts, his personal throne chariot, we might say. As God directed the cherubim, the wheels responded, and as the chariot was propelled in that specific direction. Cherubim are always associated with God's presence. They were part of the decor on the mercy seat, which is the cover to the Ark of the Covenant. Also, Interestingly, Satan was originally part of the cherubim order before he fell from heaven. We'll get to that when we get into Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, there is also some type of expanse that is around God's throne, as Ezekiel is seeing here. In Revelation, John describes this expanse as being clear as crystal. There's a voice that emanates from the throne, and glory was so bright that Ezekiel was forced to look down to the ground. God had... Um, had appeared to Ezekiel in a visionary form, which indicated that Ezekiel did not see God directly. Allow me to say that when we see God for who he is in all his glory as described in Scripture, it changes us, just like it changed Ezekiel. So Ezekiel gets a vision of God. Then in chapters 2 and 3, God gives Ezekiel his task. And God refers to Ezekiel as the Son of Man, a phrase that is used some 90 times in the book. It's a reference to Ezekiel stressing his humanity and the distance that separates humans from God. Ezekiel's task was to declare the God's word to a rebellious nation. God shows Ezekiel a scroll that had writing on both sides, the words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. The scroll that God gives to Ezekiel are his orders, his marching orders, his instructions. God tells him that the people will not listen, and even though they don't, not, they don't listen, he must still deliver the messages to them. He also warns him not to join the people in their rebellion, but to faithfully proclaim the words that God gives him. Ezekiel is told to eat the scroll, symbolic for him to consume mentally and assimilate emotionally all of what the scroll says. God tells Ezekiel to proclaim his messages to the nation of Israel, not other foreign nations, because if he went to other foreign nations and proclaimed the message, guess what? They would actually listen and respond to God's word correctly. Strange, I know, but this highlights the stubbornness of Israel's nature. However, before he is to proclaim the message to Israel, he himself is to listen to those messages first and let them sink deep into his heart. Then and only then can he go to the Israelites and proclaim God's word. Now that's a good lesson for us all. God's word must be part of the messenger before he or she can go and speak to others about it. After seeing this vision of God, Ezekiel was bitter and angry. He was associating himself with God. Ezekiel felt the same emotions towards Israel's sin as God did. And he sat with his fellow Israelites for a week. He was overwhelmed, the text says. And if we were to see what Ezekiel saw, we would be overwhelmed too. Then God appoints Ezekiel to be a watchman over Israel. 
similar to a guard that stood watch over the city and warns the people of any impending danger. Whatever God told Ezekiel to proclaim, he was to proclaim. And if he failed to proclaim the message, then God would hold him responsible. But he would not be held responsible for the people's responses to the message. That's of their own free will. Ezekiel was also to be confined to his house because of their opposition to his message. He was not to move amongst the people. Kind of an interesting thing here. This God-imposed restraint would demonstrate to the people their rebellion and God's discipline as he refused to speak to them, speak to the people through his prophet. When Ezekiel was silent, it was because God had not spoken. When Ezekiel spoke, it was because God had given him a message. And a lot of Ezekiel's ministry was to individuals rather than Jeremiah or Isaiah's per se that seemed to be corporate or to the nation in general. We have a similar responsibility with Ezekiel in that the believer in Christ today is to share the word of life, the word of salvation, the word of forgiveness, the word of mercy, the word of love. He's to share all those things through the Great Commission, and we're to do that oftentimes individually. Chapters 4 through 5 of Ezekiel contain four signs of coming judgment. Though Ezekiel was confined to his home, he often used objects and actions, possibly in his front yard or at the entrance to his house, to kind of arouse interest. All four of the signs in these chapters were about the coming siege of Jerusalem. The sign of the brick in the plate is designed to show how harsh the destruction of the city will be. The sign of Ezekiel laying on his side for a period of time was designed in some way to refer to the length of the siege of Jerusalem. The sign of unclean food was to show that the severity of the siege as food and drink would be scarce. And the last sign is of the shaved head and the divided hair. That's in chapter 5. God told Ezekiel to shave his head and beard and then weigh his hair into three equal piles with a few strands left over. As you read the chapter, you'll see the reason for the dividing of the hair into equal parts. However, even in the midst of all this death and destruction, God shows mercy by preserving a remnant. Now, chapter 6 and 7 tell us that after giving his four dramatic signs, he follows up with two sermons, each beginning with the phrase, The word of the Lord came to me. The first message focuses on Israel's idolatry. Israel was supposed to only worship the God in heaven and in his temple in Jerusalem, but the people had set up shrines to false gods throughout the land, in mountains and valleys and other places, etc. Both the false places of worship and those who built them and worshiped them would be destroyed. And as a result of this judgment, Israel would come to know that God is the Lord. The next sermon in chapter 7 depicts the far-reaching nature of God's judgment as it would extend to the four corners of the land, meaning throughout Judea. The punishment would be according to their conduct or their ways, a phrase that occurs five different times in that chapter. So God is just because he's giving punishment, judgment according to their actions. Now, chapters 8 through 11 are all concerned about one vision that Ezekiel received, which is split up into four chapters. This vision is about the departure of God's glory. In chapter 8, Ezekiel was taken back to Jerusalem, and he sees an idol that was standing in the temple and receiving worship that should have been given to God alone. God continues to show him more idolatry in his vision as he shows him the leading men of Israel who were worshiping idols, and they were furthermore justifying their actions by saying that God had forsaken them. That was the reason why they were worshiping, they said. Then he continues to show him more idolatry as women are found weeping at the feet of a Sumerian god named Tammuz. And she was the god of fertility. And here are Israel's women crying out to this god in help of their issues with fertility. God clearly is demonstrating to Ezekiel all the different classes of Israelites. All of them were guilty of idolatry. 
In chapter 9, Ezekiel continues his vision as he sees God summoning his angelic guards, each with a weapon in his hand. God instructs these guards to go throughout Jerusalem and to put a mark on the foreheads of everyone who grieved over the sin being committed in the city. Knowing those who remained faithful to him, God would spare them in judgment. God then told the guards to follow the scribe throughout the city and kill without showing pity. Those not receiving the mark were to be destroyed. Now you can compare what's happening in this chapter um, in, with Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, and you'll find many similarities about the mark. Now chapter 10, very important chapter in the book of Ezekiel. It informs us that now it's time for God's glory to depart from the temple. Big big chapter of of extreme importance. This chapter has many connections with chapter 1 of Ezekiel, so you can compare the two, especially as it relates to Ezekiel's vision of God's throne. Ezekiel, still standing beside the altar, looks at the temple and saw God's throne above the cherubim. And from the throne, God ordered these and this angelic scribe, this single angelic person, to scatter burning coals over the city. This was a scattering of God's judgment on Jerusalem. God's glory mounted his throne chariot to ride out of the temple and the city. However, the glory of God paused as it approached the east gate of the temple. And during the pause, Ezekiel received the last part of his vision in chapter 11. And God gives Ezekiel another glimpse of the sin of Jerusalem's rulers. They were still not listening to God's instructions about submitting to Babylon. They were planning their escape. They were planning on ways to fight against Babylon. Judgment would come, but God told Ezekiel that a remnant would be preserved from ones in exile, not the ones in Jerusalem. You know, because the ones in exile were submitting to God's judgment, therefore a remnant from Babylon would be preserved, not from Jerusalem. Interesting. Now God's glory then continues to depart as it went up from the east up toward the Mount of Olives, a famous place in Jerusalem, also where Jesus ascended up into heaven at the end at his ascension in Acts chapter one. Now In chapters 12 through 19, after the glory of God has departed, Ezekiel addresses the futility of this false optimism because the nation of Israel thinks that she's still okay, thinks that everything is going to be okay. But the glory of God has just departed. Ezekiel has seen this. It's not going to be okay. Judgment is coming. And true to his word, God told Ezekiel that the people would be stubborn and refuse to listen. They didn't want to trust in God, but rather they chose to trust in anything and every other thing but God. And so chapter 12, Ezekiel was to perform another symbolic act. And this act would demonstrate the inevitability of the exile. And following this sign, Ezekiel delivered a series of five messages, all starting again with the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. The remainder of chapter 12 contains two of those messages. Those messages were to assure the people that the judgment would come. It was going to come. You could be sure it was going to come. And the second message was to assure the people that judgment was coming quickly or imminent. It wasn't something that was going to be delayed. It was coming quickly. The third message Ezekiel gives, we find as we move into chapter 13, and it's a message against the nation's prophets who are leading the people away from God. They were saying, hey, it's going to be okay. In a few years, things are going to turn back to normal. And they were leading the people away from God. The fourth message is in chapter 14, and it's against the elders for leading the people into idolatry. They were guilty. And then the fifth and final message rounds out chapter 14. And in this message, Ezekiel gives four examples of how God would punish the land and kill its people. God could use any of these four means to carry out judgment. So they were to know that when these things happen, they would know that this is God's judgment on them. 
All right, well, we got ahead of ourselves, but I think our time is done because chapter 14 is for next week. But it was part of the larger context here of these last five messages Ezekiel gives. So we'll include it here. So that's all we have for this week. Continue to stay strong with your reading. With your reading. Ezekiel is an interesting book, and uh, you'll find that out as we continue uh, next week. So email any questions to BibleReadingLBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.